welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. In episode 34 of Why Make, we talk with artist, woodworker, and educator Katie Hudnall, currently living in Madison, Wisconsin, where she's an assistant professor of art at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Katie began in the arts as someone who loved to draw and was able to morph her drawing language into a unique woodworking style, despite her admitted lack of finer woodworking skills. Hudnall relies mostly on recycled, used, and found materials slotted screws, and various other fasteners to create fantastic and otherworldly work. My first remark on seeing her woodwork was that it had a very steampunk aesthetic, but was quickly corrected that it was more junk punk than anything. After taking a class with woodworking luminary Jerry Osgood, Katie soon became fond of quoting his answer to her inquiry on whether an idea would work out or not. Jerry simply replied to her, it might be a disaster. We should try it. Our conversation with Katie may well be a disaster, but an intriguing and bizarrely shaped one at that. So here we go. This is Rob Helmkamp, Eric Wolkin, and we're here with Katie Hudnall, and it's Why Make. Yes, Why Make. Welcome to Why Make, Katie. Thank you, thank you, thank you both. So I think you were, Katie, you were telling us a story I'd started into that two of the people, um, one we are interviewing next week, which is Ashley Erickson and B.A. Harrington, who teaches at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, both of their programs were slated to be defunct. Yeah. They were both slated to end, and IUP is obviously near and dear to my heart because that's where I started out at art school. So yeah. I was really sad to hear that. I never would have thought Ashley Erickson's program. I always thought the Australians were so much more progressive than us. She teaches at, what is it called? The Australian National, National University. National University, yeah. And, but uh, Rob has to, since Rob's brother lives in Australia, he has to say the name of the town it's in. Yeah, I always get it wrong. Canberra. 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 Yeah. yeah, and the, the, the BA story, you know, BA and I, I are friends. We did a, a sort of a residency worldwide, World Wood Day um, together in Austria, which is confusing since we're also talking about Australia. Um, and then, and then Ashley Erickson and I did a residency together in Philadelphia, the ITE residency through the Center for Art in Wood in 2016. So I'm dear friends with both of them, have gotten to know them at least through that, um, and really respect their work. And, uh, and, and the BA story, you know, IUP, kind of that program was on the chopping block before we heard anything about Australia National University. And the students there, rallied. There was a huge online push. There was there were petitions. And then the students on campus got permission from every living sculptor who had a sculpture on that campus that had a permanent piece in their collection to cover those pieces with um, blankets. So they blanket wrapped every single sculpture on the IUP campus. And then they put up signs and said, this is what a campus without art looks like. It's hard to say what change their minds, but that seems to have been part of why they ultimately cut positions, not in the art department, but from other departments at IUP. And of course, BA is, you know, such a wonderful person. She's like, I don't feel any better knowing that my job is safe since they cut other people's jobs. But I at least am grateful that ultimately they rescued some of these programs that on the surface look small and expensive and are like so valuable to the institution. Well, it's actually interesting. I have a very, very, very small piece in, in the uh, permanent collection in the woodworking department. And they, they didn't contact me. They could have put a piece of, they could have put a piece of Kleenex over it. <laughs> they were doing all the ones outside, right? Like the, okay. I, I thought I thought, you know, like here we are training these students to be visual communicators, right? And to think about their audience and how to get through to an audience. And they did that expertly, right? to, to yeah. communicate how valuable and how underappreciated the arts are on every campus. Every campus you see, every catalog you see, it's like all these students working in a painting department, all these beautiful sculptures everywhere. And those are the programs that they cut first, always. What an elusively simple way to break through, just cover stuff up. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And we still don't know about Australia. I wrote a, a letter in support. Um, as did a bunch of people. Ashley kind of put that out on um, a bunch of different sort of social media sites. And I think every every woodworker in the 
in the country who could, uh, especially every educating woodworker, um, tried to let her, write a letter just to say like, you know, this is, and, and there aren't that many programs like that. There are so few left in, in Australia. I, I think that somebody said it's the only one that's as diverse as it is that has, you know, jewelry and metalsmithing and mm-hmm. glass blowing and, uh, woodworking and jewelry and, and woodworking were definitely on the chopping block. And so was part of glass. Wow. Cause the one down in Hobart is not as diverse. Uh, our, our best wishes go out, turns the corner and, and, uh, and can survive. Yeah. Wow first thought that comes to my mind when you talk about ending arts programs is that you think about who are usually the establishing people in most of these communities in urban areas across the United States that come in to a lot of communities that are really hurting and they they are able to purchase properties and create studios and really in live communities with art. Think of... Uh, you know, the artists in Detroit, uh, you think of the Astor Gates in, in Chicago, and these people come in and, and they are the original sort of, uh, colonizers is a horrible word. They are the original. <laughs> Let's not use that word. Yeah, no, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that, that's a bad one. <laughs> They're the original farmers. How's that? They're the original people that come in and sow the earth and really make communities vital. I mean, yeah. the arts are, and to eliminate art programs because they don't, unfortunately, in a cold way, I think most universities these days are thinking of as education purely on an economic basis. Yeah. And what programs bring in money and what don't. And yet it's sort of a failure of our whole society to sort of take the long look versus the short look. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's really hard to quantify, I think, quickly what an art program does, certainly what a craft program does um, within the arts. But at least where I have taught, the craft programs have been the gateways to the art department, and they've been the gateway to the arts in general for a lot of people. A lot of people don't understand a painting or a sculpture, but they get a chair. They get a beautiful chair, you know? They get like a beautiful coffee mug. They understand those objects stuff that you have more of an opportunity to touch versus something that's on a wall in a museum. And it's a start, you know, it's like I could have this thing that everybody has in their house from Ikea or from um, Walmart, or I could have this object that, that was made by somebody and is a small business in my community mm-hmm. um, and is buying goods from my, my community and is supporting, you know, and hiring young people in my community. Right. It's like, it just sort of makes sense. I think it isn't the it isn't where all the research funding is is coming from necessarily. Um, and it, it's hard to quantify. Yeah. And you know, the other interesting thing to me is sort of the the flow between the between what's considered the fine arts and crafts. I mean, I think in your case, you started out as a as a sculpture student, right? You started out. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I started off as an illustrator, actually, because I, you know, like um, that's in high schools. That was the art program, right? Drawing, drawing and um, painting. And, and so like that was my introduction to what art was. And so I went to art school because I could draw for that reason and for others. I mean, I, like making stuff is really amazing. And that's not something that's really afforded anybody these days and certainly not women. And so like, you know, if you make something as a woman, it's food or it's clothing, generally speaking, even still, like, it, it, like we still train our young people this way, right? What are they calling those classes? Home economics or? Home ec. And my, my grandmother, my father's mother was a home ec uh, teacher and she got her wow. master's in home economics. So before we stray too far into starting with illustration and you starting school, we're going to throw the why make question out there before we get too deep into stuff. So what was the first thing or the first time you remember making something? I thought about this question a lot because you guys sent me this thing like a while ago and I was like, I kept sort of like um, picking up and tossing away answers because none of them felt honest. You know, I sort of remember these weird little things that I did um, as a kid. But but I actually like the most honest answer is and this is a super early memory. Yeah, I would have been in like kindergarten or somewhere around there. And I had two little friends. We were young enough that they were both boys, but it didn't matter that they were boys and I was a girl and we were playing together, right? It was like that age. It was the same dirt you were playing in, so it didn't matter. Exactly, except that we were on 
um, at a pretty epic playground at Waynewood mm -hmm. Elementary in Alexandria, Virginia, we made a submarine. And I remember the submarine vividly. It was the inside of the playground sculpture, but like we drew the dashboard and I knew where all the control, like I can actually describe, I could probably still draw for you the inside of the submarine that didn't exist. And that is like my first most honest memory of making something of like being like, oh, where's that control going to go? Oh, it's got to go over here, of course, because there's like a perfect spot for it. I mean, it still feels really real. Like I'm like, oh yeah, that was a really good submarine. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because my first image of making was turning a refrigerator box into a rocket ship. Oh, I yeah. Like, yeah. And I was like, and there's something about that age where anything's a possibility. Oh, yeah. The wildest thing seems incredibly real. Oh, yeah. I, I was building tree houses and like cobbling together from construction site debris. Yeah. I'm, it seems to me that if somehow we could... Uh, have a class in art school that transports everybody back to their inner five-year-old. Yeah. Uh, oh, it would like be way better in graphic design. <laughs> it sounds actually like the class that Linda Berry teaches here at UW. <laughs> do you guys know Linda Berry? Oh, we do not. Go she's for a, it. She's an illustrator, um, a pretty remarkable illustrator. She won a MacArthur, of course, because she's a genius. But she teaches an illustration class here um, about drawing and about how drawing is sort of your first language like even before even before you understand what the letters are what they do you understand mm -hmm. them as images and as drawings before you ever understand the relationship between the sound a and an a you yeah. are learning to draw it and in those days it's still a drawing right it's not a symbol for something else it's not an icon it's a drawing that's why a giant pack of Crayola crayons is one of the most important things a kid can get. Yeah. Yeah. I was partial to my Prismacolor giant box of colored pencils. Um, and it, like I got this thing and I was like, and I wouldn't let anyone else touch it. And I'm a middle, <laughs> I'm a middle child. So like nothing was sacred in my household, but people knew like don't mess with the Prismacolor colored pencils. So how did you discover Linda Berry's work? She's written a couple of books. Um, one is called Syllabus because she illustrates all of her syllabi. Um, syllabi. I still, after 10 years of teaching, I'm like... Syllabi, I think, is the... Yeah. I like syllabuses, though, because I imagine, like, a bus. So she wrote she wrote a book that sort of is her syllabus, and she wrote one called What It Is, um, which is sort of talking about the connection between memory and drawing. And she teaches these classes here that are waitlisted out for, like, hundreds of students because it's because she demands an incredible amount from her students, um, mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't take any special skills. And like, so, you know, some of her early exercises involve like making people draw with their eyes closed, you know, like a plate of bacon and eggs and then like a giraffe. That's awesome. Um, and like when you go and look at those drawings and you look at everybody's around the room, you start to pick out that everyone has a style, even though some people can draw, some people can't, and everyone did it with their eyes closed. And she's like, that style is you. That's you. That sounds like an amazing exercise, just self-discovery period, having yeah. nothing to do with art. Yeah. I actually did that exercise in a class I took with Roseanne Summerson at Anderson Ranch. Nice. The thing, too, is especially in a, in a woodworking class is it's a great equalizer because a lot of people are really uh, embarrassed about their, their drawing abilities. Right. It's not a skill most woodworkers have. I've heard so many woodworkers say, oh, I can't draw or shit. Right. But when all of a sudden you're you're sketching things blind, just looking at the object and not looking at paper, it's it's, it's really freeing to, again, you know, find out what your internal style is. Wow. How do you interpret that object? Yeah. And I think being bad at something is also exceptionally freeing, like uh, like sort of letting go. Because I think that that's one of the things that's so stifling in woodworking is like this sort of sense when you start out that you immediately are doing something terribly, terribly wrong. Even before you know the names of the wrong things that you're doing, you like get this sense that like that there is a right and a wrong way to do it all. And of course, that shifts and changes with every new mentor you have, every new teacher you have, um, every like jerk you stand beside, like in a shop space. <laughs> um, oh. And I, I think like one of the things that benefited me greatly was that I'm not a natural woodworker at all. I'm awful at it. And people let, left me alone for that. And it was absolutely lovely. You know, it was like, it was like, okay, like I'm so bad that they haven't even bothered to try to like correct me because they're like, she's doomed. And so I was kind of allowed to invent my own language, which was 
which has been wonderful and super freeing. It's like if you're just bad at something and you're bad at it for a really long time, you you get it in a way that other people who get it immediately don't get it. <laughs> you were so bad at making furniture that you got good at being bad at it? Yeah. Well, and I found a different way to do it, right? Like I was looking at it developed into your own language. Mm-hmm. And I and I was looking at things like woodworking objects around me um, without being told to go look at Sam Maloof or to go look at George Nakashima. Like I was just looking at like the things that were around to figure out how to put things together. And the things that are around are architecture. And sometimes like that's vernacular architecture. That's that's like barns and stuff. If it's wooden buildings, usually barns and sheds. And sometimes it's like um, you know, if you're walking around in a city, it's like train trestles and bridges and, you know, big industrial buildings, anything where the, the inner workings of how a building is put together, any, any place where those aren't hidden, I'm like always looking to see how things are put together. And that's yeah. how I put my work together still. The image that comes to my mind from what we were saying before about just going from being really bad at something is like, okay, you got a dovetail and there's a gap in it. And the gap just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it just turns into this whole different aesthetic. To me, that's almost, it seems like that's what you're grown from and created. Yeah. Yeah. But like, not even like I didn't, I started off in a sculpture program. uh, Well, and so I didn't, I didn't even know, like, I remember getting um, somebody telling me like drawing briefly, like the idea of what a dovetail was and me thinking like, how would you even like some of those cuts are angled. Like I didn't know you could tilt the table saw. I didn't know you could yeah. tilt the bed on the bandsaw. I didn't know anything about hand tools um, because we didn't have them really at the Corcoran, which is where I went to um, undergrad. I mean, we had like a box of four chisels and you can imagine like what those chisels looked like, right? Because they were <laughs> used by the sculptors and the woodworkers. And so it was just like, well, how, how are boxes put together? And like, if you walk around and look at the way things are put together in the world, it's like, oh, nails and screws, you know, or, or twine or any number of things. Like, I'll just use that stuff. I think the important part of this conversation in terms of how things are put together and how you build things is, is something that's come up many times is intent. Right. If you want to put something together in a very anal fashion, and that's who you are, that is your intent. Um, and that intent is very true to who you are. Um, I'd give you a give you a little pushback in terms of the, at least my experience in the woodworking world is you put a hundred people in a room and you ask them to do the same task. You're going to get 99 different uh, solutions and they all work. Yeah. It's so freeing to free yourself from, you know, technique, but you don't necessarily have to use it. Right. And if your, your intent is to create something freeing, I think it's great. I think woodworkers were, we're so we're so stuck in this this I'm kind of stuck there myself. So Eric, I'm gonna steal this one from you and ask Katie directly, when did you when did you find that intention? Oh, that's a really good question. I you know, and I called it the first time I sort of thought about it and understood what it meant, I was in grad school and um, I had gone to grad school because I wanted to learn woodworking, which is, as it turns out, not the reason you go to grad school. <laughs> Um, you know, you're kind of too late at that point. Um, but my, my mentor there, Bill Hammersley, always, always said, whatever you do, make it purposeful. So he used the word purposeful. Like, does that look intentional? Does it look purposeful? And then my first year, end of my first year, maybe we had a visiting artist, Rich Tannen, come down from RIT. Um, and I had applied to RIT. I had applied to a couple schools for grad school. And I went to VCU because it was in-state for me. Um, and because Bill Hammersley was a friend of uh, somebody I was working for. Um, and they recommended the program. And it ended up being absolutely a perfect fit for me. But Rich Tannen said, you know, after we'd been talking for a little while and he saw what I was doing in school, he said, you know, I remember your portfolio and we accepted you into the program with three years because we knew that you needed more woodworking. But but it seems like what you've gotten here has been so much better than anything you would have gotten at RIT because you've, you've learned how to develop appropriate craftsmanship. It's appropriate for what you're doing. And I love that term, like that notion that like there are moments when it's inappropriate to use a dovetail, whether that's because it's, it's not expeditious or um, whether that's because conceptually it doesn't make sense, right? Like, 
there's a lot of reasons why sometimes like you need to nail a thing together or you ought to nail a thing together. And so I kind of, I still use that language. I say appropriate craftsmanship. And I found that in grad school. I sort of realized that I had a really wonderful mentor there uh, who's on my committee, a woman named Susan Iverson, who's an amazing weaver. And she said, you know, your sketchbooks are just full of these weird creatures and monsters and nothing square in them. And you draw this way. Why on earth wouldn't you build this way? Like, why are you trying to build like a furniture person when you draw this other way? Like having an academic, a brilliant mind kind of give me permission to to build the way that I drew was hugely freeing. Well, I was young enough that it that it worked. I, you know, I was 23 when I went back to grad school, um, and I didn't know how to make things. So, like, I needed to be able to survive a two-year program and get somewhere with it and like learn something. And I, I sort of, I think partly I got that permission, and partly I realized like I wasn't going to become a master woodworker in two years in grad school. Like, in fact, I probably won't in my lifetime. Like, woodworking is is so beautifully expansive and you know eric is right like there are a hundred billion ways to do yeah. every yeah. single task um and the best woodworkers i think are the ones who recognize that and get super curious like if you go to a furniture society conference and people start working on stuff you'll get like like 90 people kind of circling being like oh that way oh you do it that way um and it's it's great but those are like i think those are the like my favorite people right the ones who are the point I've been itching to make here is I think there's this really interesting fluid movement between furniture makers and sculptors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It moves back and forth because some people have an intuitive understanding of relationships between objects, and some people have an intuitive understanding of technique and construction. You can approach it from either side. Yeah, and there's a lot of different like places all along that map, right? That you, like, right, all along that continuum. <laughs> I've gone from being a classically trained woodworker to being a, a horrible sculptor, but I, I really love it because I have, an, I have an intuitive understanding of the materials and how they go together. Right. My, I, you know, my formalistic ideas of, uh, of relationships between shapes, eh, you know, I, it leaves a lot to be desired, but I, I love experimenting with that. Yeah. So. Anyways, I was itching to make that point. I don't know why. No, it makes sense. It makes, and I think it's, I mean, I think that's why I'm always kind of like razzing woodworkers. I sort of, you know, like I sort of have to gently kind of like, like poke at some of the folks who, who are sort of rigid because they're the best makers out there. Right. And like they could make anything. Um, and so I'm always like, well, make something weird. Like, come on. Like, the world needs weirder things in it. It just does. You just spoke right to me and <laughs> almost knocked me out of my chair. Thank you. Ouch, it hurt and I needed it. Um, it's just that so like, it's like when I see like a really strong, tall person in an office job, I'm like, no, get behind a table saw. Are you crazy? Like I'm five foot three and I've been struggling with this for years. I need your height. I will say that like in my kind of old age now, I Oh oh Pashaw. Come on. <laughs> um Careful, Katie, I'm twenty years older than you. Well, I, I you know, I'm still surprised that I'm forty one uh and a half and that I've been doing this for as long as I've been doing it. But um I do feel like every once in a while I look back and I think, Oh, past Katie. Like what what were you thinking there? Um, <laughs> talking to you, yourself in the past. You poor, oh, I, I have three me's. Um, uh, the future Katie too, she's very smart. Um, and I have to remember to buy cream for her because <laughs> she's coming tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, but she I could, she to, could be here in an hour. You never know. She could be. I just want to make the world a better place for her. Yeah, but it's so odd to me that, 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 that I would have. And I hold this in the same, in the same brain that says, like, make something weird, but that I would ever look at anybody making anything and think, and think that's not the thing you should be making. I have a lot more respect, I guess, than I used to for the, for the Cronovians and for the North Bennett Street. You know, and I look at people like Aspen Golan. I don't know if you guys have interviewed her yet. She's on the list. 
I met Aspen 10 years ago. I had a studio in Asheville, North Carolina. She moved there. She interviewed for a studio spot. She barely knew how to do anything. And she she was like, oh yeah, I don't really know how to use a table saw. Can I be a part of your shop? And she ended up actually finding a different avenue and different, I mean, and look at her now. It's yeah. like quick interview. And she's like, oh, I don't think I'll fit in here. Oh, it was awesome. Aspen's cool. Yeah, super cool. And like the work that she makes looks like, at least the stuff she was making at North Bennett Street, um, looks pretty traditional with with these sort of inclusions of paintings, drawings on the on the glass parts. Um, but then you listen to her talk about it and realize sort of how subversive that work is, and it's like, you smarty pants, you good for you. Well, she's taking that knowledge of old world woodworking and just putting that into part of her vocabulary. Yeah, well, and spinning it. Absolutely, and I think that she. You know, she needed, um, she had to make that work there to get the most out of that program. And she understood that. Like, yeah. um, like this program works. This program will give me the chops. Let me, let me, let me just go through it. But then also was like, uh, kind of like, let me mess with it just a little bit. <laughs> it sounds like what I was doing and what I still try to do with some of my work, especially when I was in school at Haywood a while back and they were like oh we're gonna do a production summer and you know a project was let's make a cutting board or salt and pepper shakers and i'm like uh-uh i'm gonna make um something that's really crazy and i ran into andy buck toilet plungers <laughs> and i decided i was gonna do a whimsical twist on fly swatters so i made fly swatters all summer and still do right yes i do i do different versions of them actually I'm keeping my fingers crossed in three days. I'll find out if I'm going to be able to get into a show to make three giant six foot tall fly swatters. <laughs> That's awesome. But stuff like that. I, I love it. Weird. So that leads me into a question I've been dying to ask you. What do you call yourself as a maker, sculptor, furniture maker? I mean, since there's a whole bunch of different training and different things like that how do you see your work in the world how does it fit in where do you i don't even know where to go with that but she's on the spectrum <laughs> i'm on the spectrum i am that's brilliant and true and i'm not really that interested in the labels and i would say yeah like the the words that come to mind first are artist and woodworker i always think it's kind of odd that i say woodworker because because i know that i don't woodwork the the way that I think people sort of imagine woodworkers woodworking. And I love the material. I, like uh, for me, like sort of learning how to, how to work with this material, um, especially reclaimed material has been, you know, I sort of grown up as a person kind of learning how to work with this material. In BA, um, gave a talk at the Furniture Society conference two years ago, two years ago maybe. And now I don't remember where that was. Maybe it was in San Francisco. No, it was in Milwaukee. It was in Milwaukee, where she talked about learning to to be a good woodworker, especially with hand tools, is is actually a lot about empathy, about listening to the material and saying, okay, I'm planing you this way. Oh, you don't want to be planed that way. I'm flipping around and I'm planing you the other way. And it's it's literally like having to listen to the material. And that listening is an empathetic process, and it builds empathy. Because if you sort of like ham-fistedly like roll through material, um, you get bad results. Like, and I feel that way about a lot of things. I feel that way about like setting in slotted screws. Everyone hates slotted screws. I'm like, what's wrong with you people? They're beautiful. They're sturdy. They're great. You just have to listen to them. Like you can't, you have to pay attention. There's an art to that. You just have to push in the right direction. Right. And, and drill like four different holes. <laughs> I'll, we'll have to talk to BA. I, I sort of love the notion of giving your materials personhood. Uh, I just hope we stop before we give them rights. Thinking of this empathetic way of looking at materials, how how did you discover working with mostly recycled materials? Is it happenstance or are you just, uh, I'm just curious about the process of finding this material, which you seem to pretty much work mostly in. The answer to reclaimed materials is twofold and they're both bad answers. Like, I, I don't know... Well, I, one's more understandable than the other. Like if a student came to me and said this, I would be like, ha, 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 go pay for real materials. The first was that I had no money, no budget when I started. And pallets are free and um, there's wood to be had out there if you don't mind dumpster diving. And then the second, the second part of that is that there is, I can't imagine a less comfortable place as a woman than a lumberyard. So if I, like, if I can build something out of like three inch sticks that I, they spend like a year gluing together to make one like full length piece of something, I'll do it. First of all, there are no bad answers on why make. 
all answers on why make are good. And those are two incredibly valid. They're honest. They're honest and valid. No, it, it has heartened me over the years to see, at least in the furniture society, the position of women move up and the, the diversity, although yeah. not so much um, color-wise, ethnic diversity. I mean, it's still mostly white people. Yeah. But no, I, yeah. as a beginning woodworker, I was terrified of the lumber shop. I remember uh, the very first time I went into the, the lumber yard, the big lumber yard at, at Haywood Community College, and the foreman of the lumber yard comes up to me and says, what's you interested in, boy? And I said, what's that poplar about? And he said, and the first thing he said to me, oh, so you's a Yankee, ain't you, boy? I just remember being eternally grateful that we went on a field trip to the lumber yard because I had no idea that any of that was available or possible. And as I was going to say, I mean, I can imagine being in a male-dominated world, just how terrifying it is. I mean, especially for women who are plumbers or electricians, and you go into the electrical shop or the any place, they're, they're all incredibly male-dominated. I was going to say, my experience is actually just like Rob's. Before I started going to woodworking school, I spent a summer working in an architectural millwork shop that was actually led by a woman. She was the shop foreman. And I think one of my seminal experiences in, in learning patience and how to work was we built this incredibly intricate mahogany doorway with two side lights. One of the guys hadn't propped it up correctly. I mean, they hadn't put enough screws into some pieces into the sides. So the whole piece, and this is like a $10,000 doorway, just like falls flat shatters into a million pieces. Vicky, that's her name. I can't remember. Uh, what was it? Vicky. Oh God, I'm completely. And Vicky just goes, pick it up guys. Let's just put it back together. If that had been a mail shop, the invectives would have been, yeah, fucking assholes, you morons. Look what you fucking did. It was like, Vicky was like, pick it up. Let's put it back together. All with barely a sigh. It was like unfortunate, but these things happen. Yep. Just gotta, just gotta move on. Keep on yeah. going. Moving right along, speaking of that, so you found this love for recycled material, but I was going to say the very first piece of yours that I, I saw was the pirate stool. Even though it seems a world away from what you do, it definitely fits on that evolutionary path of your work. It was it was more woodworky, but it was it had that humor, which all of your work seems to have, you know, like, so what happened? If one of the legs of the stool is interchangeable, much like the peg leg of a pirate, I'm just thinking, what's the evolution from the pirate stool on? I'm just curious how your work has evolved since that piece. And was that a graduate school piece? It was. It was the first thing I made in grad school after Susan Iverson uh, sort of said, you know, like, make the things in your sketchbook. I had done a drawing and was sort of happy to have it live as a drawing. In the drawing, it obviously it didn't have interchangeable legs because that's hard to do in a drawing. I think that's the first piece that I made where I sort of realized that when you make something, when you build it, it gives you so much opportunity for depth that a drawing doesn't have. You know, and like I still do a lot of drawing and sometimes pieces just stay drawing because they feel finished and sometimes they need to be made because I'm like, I don't know what else is happening on this thing. Like, so I should probably build it and find out, right? Like, what, what does the back look like? I don't know. I should probably build it. And so I, I made that, and it was sort of the first thing that I made that had a sense of humor, and that was it was woodworkery ish, but it was it was starting to have my sense of humor, and it it had a little upholstered top and and a leg. There were three legs for it, or four that were interchangeable, so you could dress them up or dress them down, and it had a little hidden key. Um, in one of the legs so that you could get into the top. It didn't look like it opened. Um, so it was sort of treasure chest slash ottoman. And so I made that and I thought, okay, that's my humor. And, and that's a really illustrative piece. Was one of the legs a found object? Were any of the legs found objects? No, they were all, they were all made. One was red and white striped painted. One was um, used copper. I was taking like a metal class and uh, kind of fell in love with small metals. Um, and so it was like copper scales essentially and then one was wood kind of chewed on and then I thought okay I'll make another piece I had a drawing of a piece that was sort of like this thick top and it had four legs that were very long that went down to this kind of big silly looking wheel and it had a tray coming off to the side and I thought of this as sort of like an examining table and I wanted it to be tall enough that that you could sort of be standing or I could be standing since I'm five foot three and be kind of looking right at it 
without having to bend over. So I was sort of imagining this kind of utilitarian tool, but for an imagined purpose. I had this piece of wood that I that I found in the dumpster, of course, and it was pretty thick. And I was like, okay, this would be the top. I need to figure out how I'm going to put the legs on. So I just used a, a clamp on either side to clamp two long, skinny legs coming off of all four sides. And I sort of walked back from that. And I was like, and I'm done. <laughs> That's all I need. I was like, oh, I don't need to put, like, I can just like, drill a big hole through the legs and two spots each so it doesn't pivot and put um, dowels in there. Like, why Why would I do anything differently? So I did that, and then I um, put the wheels on there, again, with screws, and I don't think the wheels turned especially well because I didn't, at that point, sort of understand that you need tension, right, on a bolt, um, but if something is spinning, it will... <laughs> It will unscrew the bolt, you know, like figuring out some of those systems took a long time. And so that was kind of, that was the sort of the next part of the evolution was like, okay, I had my sense of humor. I knew kind of that I wanted to do this more illustrative thing. And then building that examining tray and table, I was like, this is how I make, this is how I build things right now. At least this is the language that I understand. And it, it moves at a speed that feels like mm-hmm. drawing because um, it's very fast. So I literally... And I still make like this fairly frequently. I literally just screw things on and cut them off and take them apart and, and add more bits so that I get a line quality that I'm happy with and so that structurally things go together. And sometimes those don't marry very well. I'm like, mm, structurally, this is very weak, but I like the way it looks. And so I'm always sort of like balancing between those two things. And that's usually when something exciting happens by mistake. And so like that was sort of the evolution. It's like, it was like, like what I want to make and my sense of humor and then how I want to put things together and uh, a way to put things together that involves the tools that I will have when I graduate from school. And then after grad school, I took a class with Jerry Osgood, of all people, at Penland. It's like I can't imagine two like more different um, interests or skill sets than his and mine, uh, but he was so patient and so funny in a really kind of pared down way. Um, and it was in his class that I understood for the first time why you would need a working yeah. drawing. You know, like it just clicked. I had now done enough woodworking and enough sort of building that I suddenly was like, oh, if you've got an angle drawn, you can put it on your tool and then put it on the tablecloth. What a cool challenge to yourself to take a class with, you know, somebody who does such finite woodworking. It was amazing. And that Ted Ted uh, Lott was in that class with me too. I don't know if you guys know Ted Lott's work. Uh, he's the one that does the, the suitcase houses. Yeah. Incredible work. Yeah, he's great. He I lived with him when I came here as a resident in 2009 after that class. Um, and he and I have stayed friends ever that since. That time is when I first saw your work. We were both in 500 Cabinet um, from Lark Books. And I saw C. Sloom yeah. and uh, Cabinet with Sidecar. And then and then I also after that saw Captain Ronnie's desk, which was in a design book for the Furniture Society, I think, or something like that. At best, it was a, a Tanton Press. I loved it. Loved it. Freaking crazy as in I love this. Jerry's class was all on cabinets and uh, taught us how to do bent lamination. And he also gave me like the quote that I use the most often with my students, which was, well, second most often, which was um, at some point I was like, I'm doing this bent lamination. I'm not sure if it's going to work. And I was like, sort of set it up. I was like, Jerry, do you think this works? And he said, it could be a disaster. <laughs> you better try it. <laughs> like totally deadpan. And I was like, I love that little old man. It could be a disaster. But now you have to give us your number one quote. Oh, um, uh, that that comes from Michael Hoffelich, and it's, uh, if it works, you did it right. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I always add to that, if it works, and it's safe, and it's repeatable, you did it right. <laughs> Those are my three. You repeat different motifs and some aesthetic qualities, but do you ever repeat exact things in your work? I don't. I'm trying to more. I still don't completely. Like, I made four little cabinets that went to a show in Maui, in Hawaii, oh, beginning of this year, back when things weren't terrible yet, or we didn't know they were terrible yet. And and they were all sort of bandsaw and box, French cleat. Um, the doors were all sort of built the same. They all had a carved eye on the interior of them. They were all painted kind of with different motifs, but similarly. And I, I made that series with, with Wendy Mariama's advice in mind. Um, cause she was like, if you're making one of something, 
just make four of it. Like it is so much easier to do four of something than it is to do to do one and then to do that one again and then do that one again. Um, I had three boxes and I made seventeen, so that's pretty close. <laughs> I think the idea, the distinction here is, is that Rob, you are on the version of the P word, which is production. Yeah. I like the S word better, which is series. I want to get back to this issue where you took this class with Jerry Osgood and you learned about making, you know, working drawings. Yeah. And that seems so the antithesis of your whole process. Yeah. And I'd like to know the relationship between your sketchbook, which seems to be very important. In fact, I have a wonderful picture of you from the American Craft article that was done on you in 2017, holding up your sketchbook drawing of the Nautilus cabinet. Yeah. I, I'm sort of curious where your sketchbook fits in in your process. And and even though Jerry gave you that big wow of making uh, working drawings, it doesn't seem to fit. It it does. I mean, if you look at some of the, a lot of the pieces that I've made are a cabinet form, often sort of floating on really spindly legs. Like that's kind of the the thing I go back to again and again and again. And if they're rectangular boxes, then I don't make a working drawing because I don't need to. But if they are weird shapes, then the box itself needs a drawing. And sometimes I draw directly on the material that I'm going to use as a template. And sometimes I don't use a template. I just screw the front to the back and then flush trim them. You know, it sort of depends on how I'm, I'm putting the thing together. And you'll notice almost all of my pieces, I'm starting to change this now, but almost all of them are planar, like, they're yeah. curved only in one direction, right? And the front and back are identical. And that's, I think, partly because I think about things so much from a sketchbook point of view. And then I, I twist or change or affect that more playfully or more intuitively by adding bits, <laughs> which hopefully are legs. Sometimes they're not. A lot of the pieces wind up with hinges that become like kind of a, a big visual part of the piece or they, they have legs that are they're not sketched or drawn. Uh, but I make working drawings and I make models now because I have so much less time in my shop as a full-time teacher than I did. So it's really helpful for me to like fuck up a small scale or like be like, no, I don't like the proportions of that small scale and then we make that. And then, you know, sort of launch into something big, knowing that I like the proportions of it, then to make something and be like, that's terrible. Even though that process of like making something big and being like, that's a colossal failure. What shall I do with that big piece of poop over there? <laughs> like, that's really helpful. Like, that is where some really energetic thinking and discovery happens in my shop. So I try and let myself build that way in the summer. But in the winter, when I'm teaching and like, you know, 60% of my brain is in teaching mode, I make... I make working drawings and I make, I make models. Actually, it's, it's kind of curious because I've gotten to the point where I almost sketch and scale. I can actually put a scale on my sketches in my book and know that they're going to work. But ultimately, I've got to admit, I use CAD when I really want to try and see an object in 3Ds because I don't draw that well. Yeah. Your work would be insane in CAD. Interesting because I... I so value that tool for my students and I understand CAD and I understand um, some of the, the sort of technologies that have come in. I won't even call them new because I don't think that you can use that term at this point, but the CNC, the 3D printer, all that. I understand enough of all those technologies to be able to send a student to the right technician when I think, oh my God, really that shape? Like let's just CNC out a template. Whereas, you know, the kid that's like, I'm going to cut these 47 rectangles with the CNC. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, you're not. We're not going to do that. But I I really hate the computer screen. Like, I don't like watching movies or TV and, and don't very often. So the dawn of Hudnell CNC Industries will never come to fruition. I don't think so. I mean, I won't say never because, because it's a tool. And what I think is really interesting is some of the work that's happening kind of in the glitchy edges. Yeah. Uh, you know, like there's all kinds of people who are taking like like literal glitches and then figuring out what those would look like 3D rendered and making those objects. Huh. Trying to think of his name, this guy named Chris Stewart in in Indy. He's a Heron grad um, who makes beautiful beautiful work out of bronze and you know these beautiful large scale tables that are based on glitches in Rhino. Um, and I think those are really beautiful. Like I think like sort of translating like recognizing them as a tool again and kind of understanding how you can kind of like 
ask for mistakes or manipulate mistakes really interestingly, the way that you figured out how to do that with a table saw or a router or whatever. I think that's really interesting. But So explain glitches. Glitches are like, uh, he was talking about them. In fact, he's got table a table series called the Glitch Series. It would be rendering something in Rhino and um, he would press a button and it would be something that was, was supposed to sort of invert a piece, right? Okay. And instead of doing that, it would invert it halfway and then it would go and make this weird and shape. Twist. Right, and it was like a mistake. It was an accident. And okay, I, I see what you mean. Software, if it was in something that he had, you know, if you had like an extra, uh, I was going to say umlaut, that's not a programming um, thing, but if you had an extra number or letter in there that he wasn't supposed to have, but yeah, so he like takes those and then literally makes forms from them. That's pretty cool. And in terms of CAD, I mean, I use it again, not to figure out the final object, but to get a sense of proportion in three dimensions. Yeah. A lot of times the, the glitchy aspect, sometimes it'll, sometimes the CAD drawing will put a texture on something I never intended and it'll end up being a wonderful idea for a texture I try and recreate. That's so great. I mean, yeah. I think those kinds of uh, technological mistakes offer opportunity as well. So if you view all these things as just tools, they're just a means to an end. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you use them, if you view them as the ends then I think that's where the problem comes. If you're going to go, hey, I'm just going to program this thing, hit the start button, and she's done. Right. Bill Hammersley always said, and he would talk about specifically, like, you know, when the student first discovers the um, roundover bit, and then all of a sudden, like, everything they make is rounded over on every edge, and they're like, oh, no. And he would always say, like, don't let the tool rule, you know? Um, yeah. But I, you know, there's something for me, like, I'm not good at, I'm not good at translating things into three dimensions. It's part of the reason why I like mechanics so much is that mechanics work best usually in planar um, and and 90 degrees planar, right? And as soon as you start sort of messing with that, I'm very confused. But I've learned so much about how you sort of translate like one kind of motion to another from mechanisms. And in building stuff, I have started to understand and have like this kind of deep, deep, appreciation and kind of understanding of three-dimensional space that I didn't have as a three-dimensional body walking around in it for some reason. Yeah. Like that didn't give me like an understanding <laughs> of the world. Building stuff in the world has given me an understanding of the world. And I don't know, there's something I'm really excited about as my, my, my forms are getting, I'm starting to carve a lot and I've been doing that small scale, but now I'm starting to do it a little bit bigger scale. And I think starting to learn about space in the compound curve world is really interesting. And scary yeah it's um, a challenge it is you guys know don miller oh we were just talking about him i had a great conversation with him in 2009 interviewing for a job he we just started talking about making musical instruments oh he, he makes the coolest like he makes like lutes or something oh he makes all kinds of weird stuff um, the furniture society did a great yeah his his stuff is amazing i'm working on an email to send him right now to, to see about talking with him but he does this great bandsaw box technique is what i was going to say and he'll make a sphere within a sphere within a sphere. And essentially, it's it's just taking a block like you would with a bandsaw okay. box. But instead of cutting it into sort of like, say, three parts and then doing something interesting with the middle part, he cuts it into quadrants, um, into eight pie pieces, and then makes little wedges for them. And you wow. can essentially make – that's how I've made a lot of lampshades and kind of weirder forms. Oh, cool. In my introduction to coopering, even though I know it's not true coopering. Mm -hmm. It's uh, – in intentional coopering i don't know right <laughs> did you take a class with him or or just God, furniture society i think is probably how i met him um he's been he's been a hero for a long time i've known about his work for a long time he's a uw grad i'm trying to think where i first first met him and i'm embarrassed that i don't know because it's probably a good story to go with it that i'll think of the second we get off the line but um oh you know what it is is he runs the wood program or did He's retired now at University of the Arts in Philadelphia. And that's where I did the residency for the Center for Art in Wood. So we got to know each other. We knew of each other. I mean, maybe I've met a couple times. We got to know each other a little bit when I did that residency. Another aspect of your work that I'm, I really love is the, is the kinetic stuff. And the first word that came to my mind when I saw your little kinetic sculptures and all the ways you figured out to open up doors and open things is a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah. And, I, and I never knew what the definition of a Rube Goldberg machine was. So here it is. It's named after Rube Goldberg, who was an American cartoonist 
It's a machine intentionally designed to perform a simple task in an indirect and overly complicated way. And I think that just so wonderfully describes a lot of your little kinetic elements to sculptures. Uh, I asked somebody at some point to write about my work for me. Um, This is like the the life of an artist, somebody smarter than me. And they described the pieces as being maximal input from minimal output, (laughs) uh, which I think is like a great engineer's way to say exactly that. And, and Rube Goldberg has been, you know, one of my heroes since before I knew that he was a cartoonist and an amazing cartoonist. There was a, uh, an incredible show of his work at the um, uh, Jewish Museum of Art, I think is what it's called, in San Francisco when I was there at the Furniture Conference a few years ago. So I got to see some of his cartoons in person. So lovely. But even before that, I grew up watching um, Tim Burton movies, right? Like my introduction was um, Beetlejuice, um, even more than that, Pee-wee's Playhouse. Like, like uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. There's that mechanism that makes him breakfast in the morning. Oh, so good. <laughs> Seeing a bunch of Wayne White stuff on Pee-wee's Playhouse is just—you're familiar with Wayne White, obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah. His his cardboard stuff and craziness is just amazing. And and actually, there's a great article on Wayne White in American Craft, uh, in the last year. I can't remember but a wonderful world of the wonderful view on the fantastic world of Wayne White. Are there worldly kind of illustration and animation? Sure. Shel Silverstein, um, Quentin Blake. uh, My first heroes were definitely illustrators and illustrators who, um, who made spaces, you know, uh, Shel Silverstein is so economical with his drawings. Mm -hmm. He just gave you enough to know that like every character was in deep trouble. And Edward Gorey is the opposite. Like, talk about maximal. It's like, I'm going to draw the wallpaper on this wall. And it's a drawing of mostly wall. Um, Like, just amazing. I used the word steampunk earlier when I was talking to Rob trying to describe your work. And Rob corrected me and he said it's much more like junk punk. And (laughs) even though steampunk is mostly referring to Victorian England, I definitely think of Jules Verne in 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was one of my favorites growing up. And I really get that very Jules Verne feeling, and especially in terms of Jules Verne was able to imagine what it was like to be in a submarine and travel in a submarine long before there were submarines. And that all sort of ties perfectly together in that the first object you created was a submarine. And to me, that sort of really ties our whole conversation together. And that seems a good point to wrap it up. So Katie Hudnell, thanks for joining us on Why Make. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Why make? Why not? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at WhyMakePod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.